Well, good morning, Emmanuel. As you notice, Pastor Ryan is not with us this morning. Uh, he, along with four other pastors, Pastor Ward and Donnie and Michael and Tom, they are all in New Orleans this morning, not only preparing to attend the SBC this week, but this morning is a big morning for uh, our first church planter, Matthew DeLauder. And that church, Emmanuel Community Church in New Orleans, as they gather for their very first time in their own church building. It's very exciting. Yeah. It's great to see the Lord provide for them. But with Pastor Ryan out of the pulpit this morning, he gave me opportunity to speak and actually asked if I would prepare a short series that I could preach over the next year on weeks when he's out of the pulpit. So that made me think, okay, it's not a one-off. What kind of series should I begin? Uh, should I do a topical series or, well, I, after a little prayer, digging, thinking, praying, I landed on the book of Ruth. So will you open your Bibles with me to the book of Ruth? And all, the ladies, you can clap if you want. I know, I know, yeah. Ruth is towards the beginning of your Bibles, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. It's towards the beginning. Several factors led me to this particular book. One, it is a book that in the last 22 years in my time at Emmanuel, to my knowledge, it's never been preached on in a Sunday morning gathering. I think it's been preached on in ladies' gatherings, but it has not ever been preached in a Sunday morning gathering. So for that reason, I thought, we need to know the book of Ruth together. Another reason is it's a short book of the Bible, and I didn't want it to take 16 years to get through it all. Uh, I don't preach that frequently, maybe four or five or six times a year is all. So what's a short book that doesn't take forever to get through? Second, or thirdly, Ruth is narrative. It's a story, and I love preaching through story. Fourthly, it's not only a story, it's a love story. And who doesn't like a good love story, right? It's more than a love story, as we'll see, but it is a, it's about love. And fifthly, finally, it's one of two books in our Bibles that are named after women. And I love that. Now, I announced to our staff this last Tuesday morning at staff meeting that I'd be preaching through Ruth, and Patty and Rebecca Cetheo both did this number. Yes! And I know that this happens to be the very favorite book of our women's ministry director, Patty Withers, so I've asked if she would actually come and read for us Ruth chapter 1. Hopefully you have your Bibles open there. And as Patty makes her way up... We love you, Patty. Come and read Ruth 1 for us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'll probably cry. It'll be okay. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in, in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moad and remained there. But Elimelech, the, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malan and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
the Lord grant that you would find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me, to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thank you, Patty. Looks like you made it through without weeping, but I barely did. So <laughs> let me pray for us and then uh, ask the Lord to give us help as we try to understand this passage. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every single word in your word, every single story. We thank you for this particular story this morning. Pray that you'd grant us to really understand it. And in understanding it, pray that there would be applications made to our life beyond what I even know to make. And we pray that you would care for us through this text this morning. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple things about Ruth as we're digging in. One, uh, Ruth is one of the shortest books in the Old Testament. You just heard a whole fourth of the book in about four or five minutes. It's also one of the most personal books in the entire Old Testament. Ruth is also one of the most beautifully and well-written books that we have in the entire Old Testament. In fact, I would argue that it is one of the most beautifully and well-written books in all of literature. It focuses our attention on one family of four each of those names of each of those family members are significant. Elimelech, whose name means, my God is king. His name bore testimony that God was king in Judah. It was common in those days when a family had a son that his parents would pour all of their hope into that son's name. So Elijah in a day when God's people were deserting God and worshiping Baal, Elijah's name meant, my God is Jehovah. And Elimelech's name means, my God is King. Naomi is his wife's name. Naomi means pleasant or sweetness. Sometimes the nickname I've chosen for my own wife is sweets. That's how I regard her. Uh, Elimelech would have called his wife sweet because that was her name. 
By the end of the story, though, she wants to change her name from sweet or pleasant to bitter, as we'll see. Their two sons, Malon means sickly, and Kilian means pining. So Elimelech and Naomi, they didn't quite breed champions. These two boys were weaklings, and they hailed from a city called Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. All the names of these various places are, are people and places are packed with meaning. There's big themes that we're going to see through the book of Ruth that I'm excited to dive in together. Themes of suffering and how God's people suffer. Themes of God's providence in the midst of suffering. There's themes of kindness. We see the kindness of God to make provision, but we also see kindness of people towards one another. God's people are kind. Uh, they're not God's people because they're kind. They're kind because they're made to be God's people. We see mercy. We see provision. And perhaps the most important theme of all that we learn from the book of Ruth is this theme of the determined preservation of the promised seed that we'll see through the book. Now, before we dive into the details of chapter one that we just heard, let me take a minute or two to just try and situate you to the broader context of this book and the time period in which it was written. The story of Ruth comes between two very turbulent and warlike books in the Old Testament, the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. It tells the story of a rather obscure, ordinary, normal family Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons who lived during the time of the judges. You might have seen that in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And you may know about the time of the judges. This was a very turbulent time for Israel, for God's people. You only just need to read the last verse of the book of Judges to know what characterized this season in Israel's history. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The whole book of Judges it describes a downward spiral of Israel's national and spiritual life with repeated cycles time and time again of God's people turning back to foreign gods. In those days, there was no king, there was no steady monarch, and the people are just given over to what could be described as anarchy and chaos and moral failure that spirals from bad to worse. That was all happening during Ruth's lifetime. Now, prior to this last week, I thought about the book of Ruth kind of this way. I thought, oh, it's a nice little romantic interlude between those two warlike books. It is a romantic story, but brothers and sisters, it is so much more than just a romantic story. After really looking at it, I've come to see that it has a very significant purpose in the Bible. Uh, there's a purpose and a theme to the book that goes far beyond uh, the romance between Ruth and Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, by the end of the book that we'll see. And the main theme, the main purpose of the book, I would argue, is the same theme and the same purpose of the entire Bible. It's this. It is to display the character of the living God who's revealed in the pages of Scripture and show us, in this case through story form, how God is sovereign over everything and good in the midst of everything. God's providence, it shows us God's providence, it shows us his saving purposes, even in the midst of very unpleasant circumstances. So if you were to ask who's the main character of this story, who's the main character? You might think, well, it's Ruth. I mean, it's the person for whom the, name is, the, the book is named after. You might think, no, it's a story mostly about Naomi and how God provides for Naomi. Or maybe you would think it's a story about Boaz, the eventual hero of our story. But if you thought any of those, you would be wrong. The main character of the book of Ruth is God. <laughs> he is the main actor in this story. And the central purpose of the book is to display God in the work of ordinary people like ourselves 
even in the midst of their tragedies and disappointments. Again, in our Bibles, the book of Ruth is nestled between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Well, in the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, we get a history of the big, broad pictures of what God was doing amongst the nation of Israel and amongst surrounding nations. These books display how God is working in the midst of warfare and various battles taking place between nations. They show how God raises up certain leaders to lead his people, leaders like Samuel and Samson and Gideon. They all lead God's people through troubled times. Through those books, you get a picture of the national and in fact, the international ways in which God is at work in the big events taking place in the world. Well, in the book of Ruth, we get a glimpse of something that I think is equally important. Ruth shows us how God is also at work, not just in these huge big events, but he is in work. He's at work in individual family units all around the world. Even families that seemingly to us are insignificant. We know that it's ultimately God who raises up kings and presidents and various leaders around the world and puts down others. But is God also working providentially in the seemingly insignificant little family units all around the world at the same time? The answer is, yes, he is. And through the book of Ruth, God is focusing our attention on these things. And one sure thing that God is saying to us is this, whereas the affairs of kings and rulers and nations and presidents and military successes and defeats are all God's concern, no less is he concerned with small, obscure, little families unknown to anyone else perhaps in the world. God is, con he, he's concentrating the same divine energy to what's happening here in the family of Elimelech and Naomi that he is to raising up and putting down of kings even now. And this story helps us to see some of that. So with this context, let's take a look at chapter one, the book of Ruth. If you're taking notes, I've got five points this morning, and the five points, honestly, they just walk us right through the text and lift out. Here's this section of the text. So we're going to move from devastation. That's going to be point one. Devastation, and then irony in Naomi's response to some of that, then commitment, Ruth's response to Naomi, and then despair, hope. We'll move from devastation to irony to commitment to despair to hope. You ready? Devastation, that's point one. I could have used a lot of different words to describe this here. I could have used words like tragedy, trial, hardship, sufferings, grief, things that go from bad to worse. But the words utter devastation captures it best and describes it well. There are some things in life that no person ever wants to hear, right? No in employee wants to hear from their employer, we're letting you go. Those are not words you want to hear. No patient in a doctor's office wants to hear from their doctor, I'm sorry, but there is nothing more that we can do. The book of Ruth begins with words that no person ever wants to hear. The opening five verses describes a series of unfortunate events that could be described as nothing less than utter devastation. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech and Naomi, they lived in Bethlehem again, which means the house of bread, but we learn from verse 1, in the house of bread, there is no bread. <laughs> There's a famine in the land. 
Now think of this, for an agrarian society that lives off of the land, this trial alone would have been significant. In fact, it would have been life-threatening. When long seasons of drought came, crops could not grow, fields would lie fallow, livestock would eventually die, food would become scarce, boys and girls would come up to moms and dads and say, mom and dad, I'm hungry. Is there any food anywhere in this city to eat? Eventually, people would die from malnutrition. For Elimelech, he had his own mouth to feed plus three others to feed, and the frights of famine would have been trial enough. But there's more coming, way more. Devastation two, famine was the catalyst that caused Elimelech and Naomi to gather their two boys and pack up all of their belongings and leave Bethlehem to find provision elsewhere. They move away from living among God's people to find food in a foreign land. They select Moab. Moab was about 50 miles away. Now, I read a bunch of commentaries this week. There's all kinds of speculation as to why did God cause the famine? Was it because the people had forgotten God? Was it caused by warring nations close by? The book of Ruth doesn't tell us why. It only tells us that there is a famine. We can speculate all we want, but we're not given the answer directly. There's also speculation about whether or not Elimelech and Naomi uh, should have left Israel to find provision elsewhere, or should they have trusted God for provision where they were in Bethlehem? Was it a lack of faith in God's provision that led Elimelech and his family to leave Bethlehem? We're not told that either. We're only told that a famine was the reason, was the catalyst that moved them away from Judah and away from God's people into Moab. You can't help but wonder, though, about the kinds of questions that Naomi would have been asking in her own soul. Should we have left for Moab? If Elimelech, if my God is king, really stood by his name, would we not have stayed in Bethlehem and trusted God in that place rather than move on to Moab? Could we have shown our boys a different example? There were many things that likely ate the heart out of this poor woman, Naomi. That's just the two devastations. There's more to come. Devastation number three, this family moved to Moab in search of a better life. But instead of a better life, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies in verse three. Now, certainly, when a husband dies, you would expect there to be a long season, a season that's real, uh, of bereavement and grief. It's terribly sad to lose a spouse. But in those days, for a husband to die is beyond difficult and sad. It's tragedy because women, they couldn't inherit property, and they couldn't provide for themselves without a husband. And here, Naomi and her two boys are left without a husband and a father to protect them and to provide for them. There's still a bit of hope though, right? Because Naomi has two sons. Her sons can still provide for her. Devastation four, verse four. These two sons take Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. Don't confuse Orpah with Oprah. They're spelled kind of close, but this is Orpah, not Oprah. Orpah and Ruth, uh, whatever the case, uh, these boys take Moabite wives. Naomi had gone from sort of the slew of despond, grieving the death of her husband. She's down, but she goes up. The boys marry. There's a celebration. There's weddings. There's provision being made. But then, within the span of just 10 years, more tragedy come and comes in verse 5. Both Malon and Killian died leaving Naomi without her husband and her two sons. As I said, this is all devastating news, the kind of news no one wants to receive. It moves from one tragic event right to the next, almost before you can catch your breath. Within the span of five verses, this family has faced famine. 
They've moved away from Israel. Husband dies. Then Naomi's two sons die. And the death of these two sons would have been particularly devastating as now there are no men left in this family unit, unit and thus no more possibility for provision uh, from a man in the household. This is a devastating tragedy. From the Bible background commentary, we read this, widows in the ancient Near East had lost all social status. They were without political or economic status. They couldn't own property. They would equate to the homeless in our American society. They had no male protector or provider and were therefore dependent on society at large. This was the plight of a widow in these days, and in the book of Ruth, we find three of them together. These tragedies are utterly devastating. And often when we face devastation in our lives, we ask the question, don't we? Where is God? That's what we ask, isn't it? If you were Naomi, isn't that what you would ask? Sisters, if your husband died, what would you do? God, where are you? How could you let my husband die? And then, if after your husband died, your two sons died shortly after, now it's God. Not only did you take my husband, but you've also taken my sons. God, what did I do to you? Why are you being so harsh with me? And immediately, most of us would begin to think, I have been forsaken by God. Immediately, Naomi would have thought, God must have forsaken me. Here I am with two widowed Gentile daughter-in-laws outside of the covenant community, husband dead, sons dead. God, why are you punishing me? What did I do to you? To which God, if he were to respond to Naomi, might say, be quiet, Naomi. You have no idea what I am about to do with you and to you. One of these girls is going to be an answer to prayer. Not to give away too much of the story too soon, but what we're going to see is that God is more than mindful of Naomi. And he is divinely orchestrating these very tragic events with a sovereign plan and purpose that he is going to unfold in his own time. These tragic events, they don't at all catch God off guard. God is sovereign, and his providence will bring about unspeakable blessing, not just for Ruth, not just for Naomi, but for all of Israel, and in fact, for all of the world. Just wait and trust. The death of Elimelech is providential. The death of Naomi's two sons, providential. The famine, providential. It's all a frowning providence, as we sang earlier, but it's a providence nonetheless. The greatest deliverance that you or I have ever received came because a man was brutally beaten and hung on a cross to die. Providence. It is not always happy as it's happening. Providence is not always pleasant. The clouds of providence are often quite dark. Providence is hard to understand when you're in the midst of the story and you don't yet know the end of the story. It all just feels tragic. But on the other side of these tragedies, it's not tragic at all. It's just difficult to understand. Well, we move in our story from devastation, utter devastation, to irony. We see that in verses 6 through 14. There's irony in this response of Naomi. Listen to those words again, 6 through 14. Then she arose, this Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way and returned to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, 
return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you and your people, to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me that for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Irony. Why does Naomi tell her daughters-in-law in these verses to go back to Moab, back to their people, back to their gods? Well, the whole reason that she was thinking that way is because, well, Naomi lacked any kind of resource in which she could provide. Uh, for these girls. There was a law of leveret marriage, but she doesn't have any other sons. There seemingly is just, there's impossible obstacles to overcome, and Naomi cannot see a way for God to bless these girls and provide for these girls through her. She doesn't have another son. There's no son in her womb, and she has no husband. And She's old. <laughs> That's a lot of obstacles. Even if she were to get a husband today and things were to go well for them and the Lord gave a son, are these girls, Orpah and Ruth, are they to wait around for another decade, decade and a half for this son to be born, for her, for Naomi to find a husband, get married, have a son? We're talking at least 15 years. Are these girls to just wait around for that to happen? And so she reasons, Naomi does, in her own mind. That's not a good plan. She concludes, I love you girls. You've been good to me. You've been kind to me. Been kind to my boys. But I cannot provide for you. And all of my resources are depleted. You girls are still young. You can remarry. You can be provided for that way. That's your best chance of survival. Leave me. I'll return to Bethlehem. I'll glean from the corners of fields of people who will allow me to do so. I'll make a way. The Lord can provide for me, but I can't provide for you two and myself. Your best option here is to leave me because I have nothing to offer you. Well, I labeled this irony. Here's the irony in that. Naomi is an Israelite, right? And thus, Naomi has God. <laughs> and it was God who was going to be the one who would meet her need and Ruth's need. Instead, Naomi was pointing Ruth back to her family and her people and her gods. Go back to Moab. Go back to your people. Even go back to your gods because they will provide for you better than my God and my people who've left me nothing but em empty and destitute. But this is all irony, right? Because God was going to provide food and shelter and eventually a husband for Ruth, not back in Moab, but in Bethlehem because of the law of leveret marriage and a relative of Elimelech's named Boaz who lives back in Bethlehem. But Naomi says, girls, go back. Uh, go back to Moab. I've got nothing for you. Naomi was clearly looking at what she could give to Ruth. She was not looking at what God could give to Ruth. And the answer in these times of trial and trouble, the answer is God. The answer is God's people. The answer is the covenant community. The answer is God indwelling his people and blessing his people. And the question for us is, do we trust God to be enough? Or do we take inventory and assess our strengths and weaknesses and assess our, our own abilities and determine that we can or we can't be a blessing because we're 
not wealthy enough or we're not well-connected enough? Or do we actually believe that God is able to provide? Naomi would find out that God has provisions beyond her wildest dreams. Well, from devastation and irony, we come to commitment. Commitment, uh, we see commitment in Ruth's response to Naomi pleading with Ruth to go with her sister Orpah back to Moab. Verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods, return after your sister-in-law. Here's what she's saying. Naomi's saying, you need to go back. You need to go back to your people and your gods and let me go back to my people and my gods. Verse 16, but Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she shut her mouth. (laughs) She said, no more. These from Ruth, they sound a lot like wedding vows, don't they? Uh, Please don't ask me to stop following you because I won't do it. Where you go, that's where I'm going to go. Where you live, that's where I'm going to live. Your people, they're going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Thank you for that help, Charles. (laughs) All right. Uh, Why? Uh, I mean, basically, she says, you know, when I die, don't take my body back to Moab. I want to be buried in Bethlehem because your people are my people. And where you're buried, I want to be buried there. That's why I belong to you, Naomi. Why? Well, because I belong to you. I belong to your people. And when I'm dead, that's, where I, that's what I want. I want to be buried among the people that I belong to. I belong to you, Naomi, and I'm utterly devoted to you and committed to you. She makes a covenantal vow. May God abandon me if ever I abandon you. These are really beautiful words. I think as Patty was reading it, I heard a few amens out there. You know what's so beautiful about these particular words of commitment? They come from a foreign Gentile woman where you wouldn't expect them to come from, but God is going to graft her in to the covenant community. But even more than that, these words remind us of what God is like towards his people. This is what God says to his people, isn't it? You are my people and I am your God. And you're going to continue to be my people. Even when you go astray, you're my people. And I'm committed to you to the very end. Remember, this is the period of the judges. When God's people are ebbing and flowing and taking two steps forward, then two giant steps back. God doesn't say during this time, you know what? I'm pretty done with you. Enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of your rebellious wandering away from me. I've had enough of it. I don't want you people anymore. God says, you're my people. You're my people and you're going to be my people in spite of what you do. (laughs) And the book of Ruth says, here's how I'm going to do it. This book is a description of covenantal love. These kinds of commitments are what God's people ought to sound like towards one another because they're words that reflect what our God is like. Right after this, though, we see words of despair. We've moved from devastation to irony to commitment. Now let's see these words of despair. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back 
empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Notice that Naomi recognizes very much that it was the sovereign hand of God that afflicted her. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't bad timing. God was sovereign. God has dealt bitterly with me. She recognized that God had brought these devastations into her life. But at this point, like many of us, when we find ourselves in trial, God's sovereignty isn't a comfort. Instead, it left Naomi, often like it leads many of us, embittered, taking away whatever pleasantness she had and causing her to want to change her. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me that, but call me bitter. Here in the book of Ruth, you have a heartbroken woman, Naomi, who has suffered great loss and knew what it was for the Lord to afflict her. And we read that when she went back to Bethlehem, Judah, the women around looked at her and said, the end of verse 19, that could never be Naomi, could it? And she said, yeah, it is me, but you dare not call me pleasant. Rather, call me Mara, for the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Now think about this. These women in town, they were shocked. They were stunned. They couldn't believe their eyes at what had happened to her. They almost couldn't recognize Naomi, because grief has a way of changing one's facial expression and countenance and physical features. These ladies probably went home to their husbands and children and said, you'll never guess who I saw in the market today. I saw Naomi, but you'll never believe what happened to her. It's tragic. You might not recognize her when you see her, she is an absolutely broken woman. And Naomi would have agreed with them, saying, I went away full, but I am coming back empty, depleted. Naomi was at the end of her rope. Question for you here. Have you ever been at the end of your rope? <laughs> Have you ever been in a circumstance and life experience where nothing, I mean nothing that you desired was going the way that you desire it to go? Have you ever felt yourself to be afflicted by God? Have you ever been crushed under his providence? Have you ever been brokenhearted because of your circumstances? all the joy and pleasantness of your life stripped and removed, feeling as though you were under the darkest clouds in the world and nothing was able to take away the pain. Naomi knew what that felt like. In fact, when you read the Bible, so many of God's people experience similar distressing realities. Now, if you're not at the end of your rope now, but you have been in the past, that means that God has used those dark providences to mold you and fashion you and shape you into the person that you are today. If you are under those clouds presently, feeling that you're at the end of your rope, let me say just a couple of quick things. First, I do a lot of counseling around here, so this might not sound very comforting, but I mean it to be comforting, so... If you feel like you're at the end of the, your, your rope, don't be so sure that you are. What do I mean by that? Well, my guess is Naomi would have felt pretty certain I'm at the end of my rope when famine came, we move away from God's people, and my husband dies. That's enough. <laughs> I'm at the end of my rope. She would have been wrong. <laughs> Her two sons were going to die soon after. If you feel like you're at the end of your rope, don't be so sure. It might get worse. And I'm not going to say it might get worse before it gets better. It might get worse and it might never get better. 
Here's the question. Will you still trust God when it all falls apart? And if you won't, then my follow-up question. Have you ever really, sincerely trusted God or has God been to you a, a bit of a pat on the back and thank you for all the ways that you're blessing me? What, when, what, when, when all of those comforts get stripped from you, is God enough? Well, here's the second thing if you feel like you're at the end of, the, in, end of your rope. Don't define your, uh, yourself by your present circumstances. And one more thing. We always have hope. <laughs> That's the way this chapter ends, with hope and a bucket load of it. Hope, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabiter daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Hope. What does Ruth presently need? Well, her immediate need was food and shelter. How is God going to provide food and shelter? Well, Ruth is going to glean in the fields of Bethlehem. It's barley harvest. By the way, the wheat harvest is just two weeks away. There's good, it's good news. There's hope. Question, why did Naomi initially leave the promised land? Famine. But was God going to leave his people without food forever? No, he was not. Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem to start of the barley harvest. There's hope. But not just that hope, there's more hope. Where is Ruth going to meet Boaz? Gleaning in his field. There are fields in Bethlehem that are ripe unto harvest. There's enough food on these fields that owners of them are leaving the corners for the poor to come and glean. And Ruth is going to be one of those poor who gleans in a field because there's excess on these fields because God has lifted his hand of judgment and provided food. And it's there that she is going to meet her man. There's hope. There's hope. But it doesn't end there. Remember, this is written during the time of the judges. You've been listening. Good. What do God's people need in the time of the judges? They need more than a temporary chieftain to protect them from their invading enemies. They need a king. Specifically, they need a king who would be a man after God's own heart to lead them. How are they going to get that? Boaz is going to marry Ruth, and eventually we're going to get David. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. But there's more. Why is David significant? David is significant because of his lineage. It reaches back to Judah, but it reaches forward to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the promised seed, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ Great David's greater son. How do we get to Jesus? It's the beginning of the barley harvest. But there's more. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the bread of life. You eat from Jesus, you never go hungry again. Don't you dare think that the book of Ruth is just a love story. This story is about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is about how God saves his people. What does God provide? Barley, when you need it. <laughs> but a savior that we all need. Listen, when your circumstances are bad, I know it can get rough. I know it. What do you need? What do you need? Do you need a barley harvest? Well, here's the truth of the matter. If you need food, God can provide you with food. But if it ends with just God providing you food, 
then you just get a full belly. That's it. You need a barley harvest that will result in a king that will result in a savior. You need that more than anything else that this world could offer you. Now, we have the privilege of seeing all the providence of this, right? Who would have ever guessed? If you were Naomi, if you were experiencing all that she experienced, these tragedies, these devastations, these afflictions from the Lord, that she wished she could change if she could, who in the world would have ever guessed that God was orchestrating all the blessings of salvation that would come out of this? You know what? I think that Naomi likely died, never fully understanding or knowing what God was busy doing in the midst of her tragedy. How could she know? What she knew and experienced and felt strongly was bereavement, just a battered woman, grief-stricken, heartbroken of God and afflicted under his mighty hand. Who would have ever guessed that she would be involved with the Messiah? But she was. Oh, she was. And every link in the chain was molded by God to that point. Which leads me to this conclusion. You feel insignificant? Small? Or worse, forgotten? Or worse still, not just forgotten by God, but afflicted by God? Dear brothers and sisters, you, I mean the real you, like Naomi, could be involved in the glory of the Messiah. There are so many of God's people that feel like they are less than nobodies. I want to say there are no nobodies in the hands of such a God and King as the one after whom Elimelech was named. May God give us eyes of faith to see him in the midst of whatever providential circumstances the Lord has you in today. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this story that points us right to Jesus, and we want to marvel again at what a, an all-sufficient and wonderful Savior you are. Lord, in our lives, so often our trials get large and you get small. Would you enlarge in yourself to us and cause us to walk in your ways and trust you even when circumstances are brutal and difficult? And would you do even more than we know to ask all for your glory? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.